You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let me also say welcome this morning. My name is Mark and I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And it is great each and every week to be in the house of the Lord. And if you're a guest with us today, we want you to know it is by no accident that you are here. In fact, none of us are. That we believe before the foundations of the world, God knew who would be here today on this, uh, feels like, I'm sure it is summer, uh, feels like we're in the middle of the summer already, uh, on this day, the last one of May. This morning, I do want to invite you to your Bibles in 2 Timothy, and so we're through a series this week is kind of the uh, middle of that series. We're walking through this book where it's Paul's last letter. It's the last one that he wrote that we have. And it's his most personal letter to Timothy. Paul's sitting in prison in Rome, I believe for the second time. And Paul does not believe he is going to make it out of this one alive. You can tell that by reading through this book, and he's thinking of Timothy as at this church in Ephesus that Paul loves, and people are leaving the church, they're leaving the faith in droves, whether it's by being ashamed of Paul who's sitting in prison, or by the false teachers that are coming into this church, and here sits Timothy, he's young, he's timid, I can see my notes now, thank you, he's timid, he is shy, and here is Timothy trying to stand and to lead this church. And so chapter 1, over and over, Paul tells Timothy to fan the flame of God's gift. Stand strong, he'll say, my son. He's also telling him to rely on God's Spirit, that the Spirit is there, but to fan that flame of God's gift, his Spirit. Then last week we saw in chapter 2, the idea was never give up, Timothy. I know you want to. I know there are days you're ready to cash in the chips and go home. But he says never give up. In fact, the greater the endurance, the greater the glory. That There is no glory without endurance. Well, today we're going to be in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. You haven't found that. It's one of those books that may be a little bit difficult to find towards the back of your Bible. Almost there. There we go. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be picking up in verse 14. But here's what he's going to tell Timothy and the believers of Ephesus today. He's going to talk about how do you stand up against false teachers. Many of them were in the church. We even have them still today. Sometimes they may not be standing from a pulpit. Many times they are. But it's in the books. Even that you pick up at Lifeway. Many of the things that we grab are false teaching. But how Paul is going to tell us to do it is not what you might imagine. He's not even going to say, hey, go and learn as much as you can to be as smart as you can so that you can stand up against the false teachers. It's really interesting what Paul is going to tell him to do that today. But I want to begin with telling you about a day that totally changed my life. It was May 19 of 2000. So just a little over 18 years ago, and that is hard to imagine. I'm 27 years old, so you can do the math. Uh, married about almost six years. No children at the time. 
been out of college a few years. I'm serving at our, our church. Got out of college, I'm working, I'm serving at the church because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. In fact, I was faithful. I was faithful to attend. We tithed. We even found a ministry to get involved in and begin serving. I wanted to be a good Christian, and so I donated some time. At least that's what I thought you were supposed to do. You know, serve. I was faithful. You could count on me. I was prepared. If you needed something, I would make sure I'd done all of that. I served as a greeter and as a youth small group leader. So I was kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. Stood at the door, smiled, said hello, and then was locked in a room with some teenagers for an hour or so. But at this church was a group of young college students and um, got involved with them and um, didn't really know what to do. We didn't really have much direction, but I was doing what I thought was expected. I thought I was doing, no, I would even say, I thought I was going above and beyond. I'd look at everybody else and I thought about all that I was involved in, all the ways I was serving, and I thought, okay, man, I'm really kind of doing this thing right. Well, on May 18th of 2000, loaded up a van of college students that um, needed someone to drive them to an outdoor conference in Memphis, Tennessee. So someone needed someone to drive the van. They needed a chaperone. So Marla and I volunteered, and I was glad to do it. I liked serving. It, I don't know, it gave me a purpose. It made me feel good, those sort of things. So we packed up this van and we drove to West Memphis, Arkansas and spent the night. Got up early the next morning across the river and we headed down some country roads and we parked and we grabbed the uh, blankets that we had. You were supposed to drink your own bottles of water to stay hydrated for the day. So we grabbed those things and trekked out through the field, laid out the blankets that we were supposed to have to sit on. And all of a sudden, here we were gathered in this field of over 40,000 college students. In fact, we got all ready, and there was music. you got to have music, I guess. And there was some up-and-coming guys nobody would really heard of, like David Crowder and Chris Tomlin. So they led worship. Some people spoke some recognizable names like Louis Giglio and Beth Moore. Some of you have heard of her. So this group of college students are there, and we're having a great time. The weather was actually nice, and it's a great day. But all of a sudden, things changed. This older man, much older than anybody out in the crowd, much older than even me, steps out, and he delivered a message that totally changed my life. Wasn't, I wasn't even, I was the chaperone. I wasn't one of these, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds they were after, but totally changed my life, and I've never forgotten that message even to today. There's a pastor in Minnesota named John Piper. It was almost as if out of these 40,000 people that he was staring and speaking directly at this 27-year-old boy from, young man from East Texas. He got up and he said this. You don't need to know a lot of things to make a difference in the world. You, don't, you need to know a few things that are great and willing to live for them and to die for them. Those, those right there, that makes a difference in the world. Are those that have mastered not a lot of things, 
but people who have been mastered by a few things that are very, very good. He said anyone in the crowd can make a difference because it's not you, but it's who you are gripped by. I remember him saying these words almost just like it was yesterday. And then he turned my world upside down by saying this. Many of you, many of you do not care if your life makes a difference. You just want to get a good job, and I thought, check. Find a spouse, check. Nice house, check. Nice car, check. I thought, man, I'm doing well. Long weekends, good vacations, grow old, healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. That is all you want. You don't give a rip if your life on earth counts for eternity. And he had just described my life to a T. Then he tells two stories. Tells two stories. The first one about two ladies named Ruby and Laura. They were retired in their 80s. They retired from the medical field and they lived their lives dedicated to one thing, making Christ known among the sick and the poor in Cameroon. One day they're driving their car. The brakes go out. Over a cliff they go to their death. And then he asked, is that a tragedy? Long pause. And he says, no. He said, I'll read you a tragedy. From his back pocket, he unfolds this article from Reader's Digest from February 1998 titled, Start Now, Retire Early. About a couple that are 59 and 51 named Bob and Penny in Punta Gouda, Florida. Retired early. Cruising around, spending their days on their catamaran, playing softball, and collecting shells. He unfolded the article and put it back in his pocket. And he yelled, that, that is a tragedy. Collecting shells in the last chapter of your life before you stand before God. You stand before God and you say, look Lord at my shell collection. And I was undone. You see, I was doing all the things good Christians are supposed to do. I was faithful to attend. I listened to sermons. I served communion when asked. I served as a greeter. I was a youth leader. But I was doing all of that because I thought that was what you were just supposed to do. But church, hear me. That is not what the Christian life is about. Our heart's desire should be for our lives here on earth to count for eternity. And so I drove that van back a different man. But hear me, I went back, and I continued to be faithful in attending my church. We continued to tithe. I kept serving in exactly the same roles. But I went back with a totally new outlook. I no longer just opened a door. I no longer just spent some time with some teenagers. But each and every morning, each and every Wednesday night, I prayed that God would use me. And I wanted my life to count for something more than just my life here. 
So before we go to chapter 2, verse 14, I want to ask you this. Do you want your life on earth to count for eternity? And if you don't, I don't know, pull out your phone and play Angry Birds for the next few minutes. But if you do, I want you to lean into what Paul is going to say to young Timothy. Because Paul will show us what we need to do and what really matters if you want your life here on earth to count for something. So let's begin in verse 14. And what I want to do, I want to read verses 14 to 19 because it's one section. I'll say a little bit about that, but then we're going to really plunge a little bit deeper into verse 20. It begins by reading this. Remind them of these things and charge them, challenge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermogenes and Patelus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So here's what Paul simply says. He says, don't get bogged down. There's going to be a lot of talk. There's going to be a lot of things to distract you, Timothy. But do not get into these useless debates with false teachers. I don't know if you've ever been in one, but I've been in a few. And you walk away going, I wish I could get that hour back. He says, don't waste your time. Their debates, their arguments, their talk, it's like gangrene. It's an infection that will just spread. But Paul will now tell Timothy and the believers of Ephesus what they should do. He says, don't get bogged down in that stuff. Remain focused on what is important. And so he gives Timothy a word picture, and it's a great one. It begins in verse 20. So first of all, don't get bogged down. He says, now in a great house, there are not only, there's only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some... For an honorable use, a special use, a valuable use. And some, dishonorable. So this is like a big house, a grand house. I believe he's talking about the church. And in this house, there are two types of vessels. One of gold and silver, and one of wood and clay. And the gold and silver, it would would be one that was an honorable or special that you would use. The wood and clay, very ordinary. Kind of does the work nobody else really wants to do. It's just ordinary. It's not special. And so the gold and silver would be like this. You know, it's that special picture that you have that maybe was passed down, you know, from a generation to generation. And, you know, you knew when you were being served out of this, man, you, you were special. Some ice cold lemonade, some sweet tea or whatever it might be. But when company came, you know, you pull out the good stuff. You, you want to make them feel special. So you'd come over, we'd set the table. You know, you're not going to get the paper plates. You're going to get the real stuff. 
And you get served in something from honorable. It's, it's special. And he says, so there are two types. There, there's the one that's used for an honorable cause. And then there's this, the not so honorable. It's my bathroom trash can. Marla said, what are you doing with that this morning? I said, it's all right. You know, you're going to come to my house and, you know, I want to sit down. I'm not going to say, hey, do you want something to drink? Because, I mean, I have made, man, it's great. Lemonade, sweet tea, hey, what, where do you, right there, how much you want. So it's a dishonorable. It's, it's ordinary. It takes out the trash. And Paul says that's what it is. There are two things here. There's the gold and silver, the honorable. But then there are those that are wood and clay, the dishonorable, the ordinary use. So the question is, which he's saying, which type of vessel do you want to be? Used for honorable, for good things, or do you want to waste your life on just being content and being ordinary, serving in an unpleasant purpose like a trash can? So Paul then tells those in Ephesus and Timothy how to be of honorable use. He says, this is what you want to be, and let me tell you. He's going to say this, what do you do if you want your life to count for something? What do you do if you want your life here on earth to count for eternity? And he begins in verse 21. He says, therefore, if that's what you want to be, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful to the master in the house, ready for every good work. So this is the first thing you do is you cleanse yourself. And I wrote myself a note. It means get in the tub. That's how I tell my kids, all right, get in the tub. It's time. You have to be willing to get in the tub. The first thing that you want to do, if you want to be a useful vessel to the master, is you have to willfully cleanse yourself. But this is never in Paul's thinking something that you do apart from grace. We just have to be willing to get in the tub. God does the cleansing, and it is by his grace when he does that, then we do it. So how do you get in the tub? I believe you could turn to Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, where David is writing. He says, search me. Lord, look upon my life. Look in my heart, O Lord, and know it. Search its depth. Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. So I think one way you do is you ask God to search your heart. And then when God reveals that dishonorable thing about you, you confess it. And you don't just say, hey, I'm sorry, you know, I'll do better. No, you pray and you ask God to rid you of whatever it is that you're struggling with. Whatever that dishonorable thing is. And then I got to thinking even this week, man, when was the last time I stopped, honestly spent some time and said, God, search me. Lord, search my thoughts, search my motives, the things that have been going on, my attitude. Lord, search that and show me what needs to be cleansed. So you cleanse yourself by God's grace. You just have to be willing to get into the tub. But then Paul gives the next thing that we have to do. The first thing, you have to be willing to get in the tub. And then in verse 22, he says, So flee 
youthful passions. Flee or to run from youthful passions. And to me, I wrote, it's like, run like you stole something. Had a coach, that's what he always said. He said, man, you get that ball and you run like you stole something. Notice what he says to flee. Youthful passions. And usually we would think, you know, sensual desires. And that could be included. But in context, it means other things. It means this, that you should flee, run from, I think, being too headstrong. Always thinking you're right. I know you've never done that. But always, because when you're young, isn't that kind of how we are? If you've ever tried to convince a teenager that they're wrong, it's almost impossible. They're headstrong. Also, the younger we are, the more impatient we are, it seems to be. Maybe as we get older, we get maybe less impatient again. But when you're young, we're impatient. Everything takes too long. Harshness. When you're young, we often lack tact. And being able to say hard things in a way, we're harsh. I remember seeing this when I first went to DTS and I was one of these guys that kind of came in from the secular world. I didn't go to Bible college, didn't know a whole lot. Um, First class was called hermeneutics, didn't even know what that meant. Had to go Google it, which you didn't have Google back then. Wow, just thought about that. So I'm sitting in seminary, and I'm watching these guys at lunch and stuff, and the arguments that they are getting into, and they're so harsh with people. I thought, how are these guys even friends? Man, they were willing to debate the finer points of the Bible and win at any cost, even at the cost of a friendship. So he says, flee youthful passions. Run from arrogance. Run from impatience. Run from harshness. And I think even being unteachable. That Paul says, if you want your life here on earth to count for something for eternity, first get in the tub. Willfully cleanse yourself. Ask God to cleanse you. Then run from youthful passions. Run like you stole something from those things of impatience and being too headstrong and and harsh, being unteachable, to run from them. And then Paul says, there's some things I want you to run to. Run from these things. Notice how he says in verse 22, flee youthful passions. Run like you stole something and pursue I'd say pursue like a lion, righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says pursue righteousness, meaning right conduct, meaning actions that glorify the Lord. Seek that, pursue that. Faith, it's belief, having the right knowledge, but being able to live and to trust God in that. So it's like belief with action. Love. A love for people. In fact, it's the agape word. It's a self-sacrificing love. He says, pursue that. Pursue loving others, even at great cost to yourself. Peace. You work towards harmony. It won't be easy. You have to Work through some hard things. You have to sacrifice some things. But you seek, you pursue like a lion, harmony with other people. But notice in that verse, he says that it's not something you are to do or you can do by yourself. He says, along with those. Meaning with other people that you are not meant to go at this alone. 
You're to pursue these things of love, righteousness, peace, but not by yourself. In fact, he says you can't do it. But then Paul's going to close this section out with one thing to avoid and four other things to pursue. If you really want your life to count, it's in verse 23. He says, have nothing to do, and I sound very familiar, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. He says, don't get trapped in that foolish, arrogant conversations. Just like he said previously in that section, don't get bogged down. Don't give the false teachers a time of day. Is what he's saying. Stop listening to them and they won't have anyone to talk to. Instead, focus on what you are called to do. Don't lose focus. Don't get bogged down. But instead, verse 24, and the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to your pastor. <laughs> it's not what it says. Notice it says to everyone. We are to be about kindness inside and outside the church. In our homes, kindness. With our neighbors, kindness. With that grocery store clerk that wants to comment on every item you're buying, kindness. Your parents on that ball team, kindness. Your in-laws and your outlaws, kindness. He says everyone and especially those that are hard to love, like your pastor. And then he says, be able to teach. And I know what you're thinking. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, but I can't teach. I guess my life just can't count. If that's what it's caused, Paul says you can't teach, can't do it. But here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, are you willing, first of all, to be teachable? Are you willing to be teachable. And second, if there's something that needs to be done in your life or in someone else's life, are you willing to do it even if it's outside your comfort zone? Will you find out how to do it? If someone's in need, will you figure out how to help them? Because the truth is that we're all able to teach. Because you're always teaching someone something. Now, you may not be, you know, done a lesson plan and written objectives and how you're going to measure those at the end of whatever it is you're doing, but you're always teaching someone something. You're teaching them with your words and with your actions. I mean, take kids. By what you say and by what you do, going to the grocery store. You're teaching them how to do it, and you're even building in them what they should buy. They're watching your habits. They're going to pick up on those. You're teaching. You're coaching a team. You're teaching those players by what you say and how you act. At work. By maybe not even saying a thing by the things that you do, you're teaching others what's the acceptable work ethic. By what we say and by what we do, we are always teaching others something. That's what Paul is saying. Be able, be willing because you're always teaching. And then he says, patiently enduring evil. He means uh, not taking offense too quickly. Or being able to forgive and not hold a grudge. And my mom always said this. She always said, quick, slow, slow. What she's doing, she's quoting James 119. 
Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's what Paul is saying here, the same words in James, to patiently endure, to don't take offense too quickly, and then be quick to forgive. Man, can you imagine how different things would be if we actually followed James's command? Quick, slow, slow. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Then he says in verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Being gentle with your opponents. And that's who he's talking about. Those false teachers, he's still saying, be gentle. Paul is saying, correct them gently. Instruct others that don't understand, that are blinded by Satan's efforts. Because you know what? There will be people. You're going to come across people who are going to stand against the truth of the Scriptures. You may even have them in your own family, in your own neighborhood. There are going to be people that you will come into contact with that are going to be controlled by sin. And the advice is to go gently and instruct them. If a person is living contrary to Scripture, love them to the truth. Scripture is clear about this. Paul will say it even to the Ephesians that he wrote earlier in chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth, there it is, in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Meaning it's always truth with love. Because if you only bring someone truth, you'll push them away. But if you only bring love, there'll never be life change. There must be truth in love, correcting gently. And notice what Paul says. He's going to give you the reason why this is so important. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We are to correct gently so that God can use us to lead others to repentance and truth and away from the devil's grip. And Paul says that, that's a life here on earth that counts for eternity. So I'd ask you again, do you want your life here on earth to count for eternity? Paul tells us how it happens. A life that counts for eternity, you know what it doesn't depend on? It isn't skillfulness. It isn't how well you do things. It's based on holiness. That our lives will count if we are more like Ruby and Laura. We don't have to be a master of a lot of things. We don't even have to know a lot of things. We just need to be mastered by Jesus Christ and center our lives on Him above all else. That, that is how your life on earth will count for eternity. And I remember driving home all the way back from Memphis, Arkansas, that I wanted my life here on earth to count for eternity. And now 18 years later, I want this church to be useful and noble for Jesus Christ in this community. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.